Hello and welcome to Reflections. I am Rom Gaioso, your host. Today, our topic is information warfare. We're speaking with Rainer Michaeli, director of the Institute for Competitive Intelligence in Frankfurt, Germany, and with Dmitry Zolotokin, director of the Institute for Post-Information Society in Kyiv, Ukraine. First and foremost, thank you so very much for your being here with me and my guests. I know your time is very important, and I am the guy who will make sure it is invested wisely. Information, even more so when it's about your company, is a very important commodity. And nowadays, our information society needs to deal with that which is true and that which is not. But at times, it is hard to tell the difference. In today's show, we'll go over the alphabet soup, information, misinformation, disinformation, and whatnot. So stay tuned. And remember, if you're watching the show via Futures Television, the home of the future on television, or listen to the show via Radio Futures, the wave of the future on radio, you too can be part of the conversation. Please join us on our YouTube channel, and that is IMCI Magazine, where we continue to chat about the topic of the day. So that's time for me to introduce our guests. My guest today is Rainer Michaeli. He's the director of the Institute for Competitive Intelligence in Frankfurt and general manager at the Think Factory, the Denkfabrik, a university lecturer at the Technische Hochschule Mittelhessen. He's also a past board member of the Deutsches Competitive Intelligence Forum, and he brings over 30 years of competitive intelligence experience to the table. He's definitely someone you want to have by your side if you're serious about competitive intelligence training. My other guest today, Dimitri Zolotokin, he is the director of the Institute for Post-Information Society in Kiev, Ukraine. He's a university lecturer at the National University of Kiev and an information warfare expert with contributions to both the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine and the Ministry of Information Policy of Ukraine. He brings in excess of 15 years experience in open source intelligence, competitive research and in conflict management. Well, without further ado, we're going to welcome our guests today. Hey, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. How are you, Dimitri? Thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me in these days. Thank you. Wonderful to have you guys here. You know, let, let's let's get started. And I will start with a simple example, just to illustrate the importance of information handling. For example, here in the USA, uh, uh, Green Value Organics is the only cream cheese that is seen as cruelty-free cream cheese. It's certified animal welfare approved, or AWA, or certified human, or CH, right? So what does it mean to your local dairy farmer? Well, uh, one of the accusations leveled against a farm in the Midwest was that cows were treated inhumanely. Some were stabbed with screwdrivers, others were electrocuted, and things like that. So that's certainly inhumane treatment. Does it mean the same behavior happens to your local farm? Well, of course not. But the mere mention of the story is enough to scare people away from one brand and to steer them towards another. Was the allegation true? Well, probably yes, but not true for all farms. It was a generalization. So something apparently was true somewhere, but certainly not true everywhere or through elsewhere. 
And that illustrates how information can be used to cause market distortions. And that is exactly why we have those two experts today here to speak with us. We'll talk about you know, what it means and how it is used and why should you care? So, well, hopefully the why is pretty clear. You stand to make or lose millions. Your reputation and that of your brand may be tarnished forever. Well, let's, so let's get started with some terms. Let's get some terms explained. And, and Dimitri, I will turn to you first. So what exactly is information warfare? I think you're absolutely right when you're saying that we have a bunch of questions that concerns about the definitions of what we're talking about. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm maybe I will I will not be kind of a mainstream speaker about this because I uh, still trying to involve and um, I'm still trying to engage people in uh, uh, discussing some new words. So we are not maybe understanding the, um, uh, properly the words that we are already using, like information warfare, like memetic uh, warfare or memes or some kind of uh, uh, information security and disinformation stuff. But on the other hand, um, for example, I'm trying to explain to people what the post-information society can look like. Uh, what I'm meaning, uh, what, what I'm talking about. Uh, what you're saying about farmers, I'm not a, a person who can uh, adequately discuss the issues about farming, but what you said, uh, what you just said for me is, uh, is a story not about the information, it is a story about emotions, emotional impact of the social media, of Twitter, TikTok, uh, Facebook, uh, news in, in the outlets and so on and so forth. So why people making decisions to buy or not to buy these brands? because of the emotions. And this is why I'm trying to use and I'm trying to seek for other terms, like, for example, post-information society, which means that the processes that go beyond the information, the consuming of the information in the world, and uh, uh, it goes not about information, but about emotions. And when we go about information warfare, actually, it's not the information warfare, it's the emotional warfare but it just being delivered through the facts or false facts or the false information, which we call disinformation or misinformation. So many terms and so many definitions all around. But uh, in my humble opinion, it goes always to our emotions, how we feel about what we consume, about what we're talking about. So when we hearing when we're reading the news about uh, inhuman uh, approaches to animals so it's not basically the facts it's like attitude to our emotional uh, emotional understanding how we can choose the brand because of our emotions not because of our uh, because of the facts that we consume uh, who's doing what and who is uh, using inhuman um, uh, uh, instruments uh, how to deal with with, uh, with the animals or so on and so forth and i think that this is totally understandable because of different domains of um, marketing uh, uh, academic uh, uh, researches for example i usually uh, trying to uh, ask my uh, students to read the uh, biology truths and lies about why we buy. This is a book by Martin Lindstrom, uh, biology truths and lies about why we buy, because people understand that if you put the candies and chocolate 
at the cashier. So mostly children, when they go out of the supermarket, they will get this, they will buy these chocolates and, and, and candies, not buying, because they yes. need them, but because it's emotional impact. Yeah, so let's talk about information and uh, not information warfare, emotion warfare. That's good. So uh, let's remain on this topic. And and Ryan, I'm gonna gonna turn to you on that one. So let's talk a little about about the distinction between misinformation and disinformation. So we can accidentally or unintentionally share information that is not entirely accurate, but that's different from intentionally spreading false information. So someone's motives or intentions, and especially with institutional actors like states, right? It may be difficult to ascertain. So, so how can we tell the difference when uh, they they are spreading information because they think it's true, but it's really not, and they just didn't do the homework, or they really want to spread false information? Can we tell the difference? Well, from the definition, I fully agree to Dimitri that there's a lot of... Uh gibberish and uh, topics running around and being hyped or not hyped over time so there's a lot of ongoing systematic misuse of these terminologies even. but when I come to my sort of corporate world and company in competition with other companies then we're typically talking about an information warfare as in an intentional smearing let's say of a product of a brand of some kind of attribute about a competitor which might be true or not true again this is sometimes not even an issue of facts or evidence as in a criminal story a crime story but it's more an issue of indeed manipulation that's exactly where emotion might come in agreed so this is as we all know very um, powerful to get your consumers, your OEMs or whoever you're delivering to into a kind of shock. And then of course, they might change their mind about their minds about buying behavior, preferences. And that's exactly the kind of damage done to some competitor in the field, which might or might not be perceived as something very bad. It depends a little bit on culture and of course, how you strike your competitors. But indeed, given that you have to protect your brands, your products, your market shares, it's a good idea to understand at least who's attacking and how are they going to do it. So you might be preemptive. And if it already is happening to you, you better be aware of some kind of defense as in how can I protect whatever I want to protect here. So along oh. these lines. I, I agree that's a very sort of uh, something we're all aware of through the national players in these days, given the war, given the kind of political agendas, that it's used all over the place. And yes, we're getting used to being bombarded literally with a kind of negative fallout, like fake information, deliberately spread around the globe to manipulate, say, elections. And that's, of course, a completely different leak agreed but still it's the same mechanism so this is where i guess dimitri you and your definition fits in as well there's kind of a different perspective on the same thing that we can discuss here 
Yeah, Dimitri, actually, I have a comment and a question. So, Basir, uh, thank you, Basir, for your comment and your question, right? So, he kind of reminds us what happened during the pandemic, right? So, during the COVID epidemic, right? So, uh, all our public health was undermined because fake information was being spread, but not just by, by people, by state agents, right? Uh, states uh, were distributing false information uh, as well. And, and that was used basically as as a weapon so the use of fake information as a weapon or the weaponization of information so really true information warfare is this is this what we're going to be facing going forward this use of information by not just people but institutional actors who want to get some result and they will use people's emotions and and social media for example to try to get their means is that the future I would say that this is not the future. This is our uh, on, like ongoing days. This is our, our today. And yeah, it, it's already happened. So this is uh, this is not something that we have to consider that we might see tomorrow. It it was yesterday. It is today, and it's gonna be tomorrow. Um, me personally, I'm from Ukraine. I'm living in the middle of the war, and uh, uh, this war happened. Uh, absolutely, because of the false information that was put on the industrial scale and uh, um, the dissemination of the false information was put on the industrial scale. Uh, in the Russian Federation, we have about like uh, 120 million people living and at least 100 million of them. They're totally sure that in Ukraine there are only Nazi, neo-Nazi that willing to suppress uh, the Russian Federation and to, to kill Russians and not to speak Russian language, which is totally false. So I can like guarantee you that uh, thousands of people in Ukraine in the last seven years have died just because of these false information spreading in the Russian Federation, just because those people in the Russian Federation they are totally sure that they have to like forget everything about their daily lives, about their relatives, about what they dreamt of. They have to forget this everything. They have to get the gun in their hands and go to Ukraine to kill some kind of ne mythical neo-Nazis. So this is our yesterday and this is our today. Uh, talking about pandemic, um, uh, people even coined the special term for this. We also worked a lot on this research, uh, uh, which is infodemic. Infodemic is the information okay. part of the pandemics. According to uh, news in, the, well, uh, at least it was published in the BBC News, uh, in May 2020, if I'm not mistaken, there was a news that in Iran, which was on the top of the list uh, uh, about the, the death toll because of the pandemics, in Iran, at least 600 people died from consuming low-quality alcohol because they thought that consuming this alcohol, they can prevent the disease, they can prevent the, uh, the, the virus. And uh, according to the numbers in May 2020, um, Iran was on the top of the list with a death toll of like six plus something thousand people dead from COVID-19. So just comparing these two numbers, at least 10% of the like total death toll, 10% of people who died, 
They died not from the virus itself, from COVID-19. They have died from the consuming false information about how to fight with the virus, consuming low-quality alcohol. And this is what we call infodemic. So um, when we're talking about information warfare, it's not just some kind of posts in the media. It's not just a tweet. It's not just, a, just a news. It's tools manufactured by people that manufactured and coined to kill people, but not with conventional weapons. So when we're talking about warfare, it's still warfare. It's being used to kill people. But when we're talking about information warfare, it's being used to kill people without like actually using the violence and violent tools like conventional you know, weapon and, and this all. But the result is the same. People are dying because of the spreading of the false information. And uh, we can use any terms about this, disinformation, malinformation, misinformation. Uh, usually I'm trying to say what's happened with the all true lies. So we lie. Now we uh, used to lie on the industrial scale using television and social media. And now this lies just killing people. Um, it's not happening like in last decade. It's not happening in last century. We lived thousand years with this problem, but only in the last decade, this problem became huge. It became on the planet's uh, scale, on the scale of the world. And uh, infodemic, actually the term of infodemia, infodemics, uh, is the perfect example of how it looked like. And uh, uh, what is happening in Ukraine now, I'm trying to avoid the situation not to be regarded as biased expert, as biased person. However, I think that this is a perfect, uh, still a perfect lab, if I may, for all the nations to see what can can happen to you if you will not consider this as a huge and uh, uh, like world problem. Yes, so actually this impacts us, uh, all of us very deeply about, you know, the infodemic. And uh, Rob Thierry from Canada, thank you very much for your comment. So it was so prevalent, the United Nations actually had to do something about it. The, the World Health Organization was talking about it. No, this information is not true. So uh, all the you know governments and uh, organizations, NGOs had to put a lot of uh, a lot of energy into managing information that was just plain not true, but it was being uh, spread around. So there's a question here, Miguel Noronha from Brazil. Uh, hello, Miguel. Thank you for your question. Uh, so maybe that's more for you because of the post-information uh, society. So how can information warfare impact the public perception and the political decision-making in an increasingly digitized society? So we we are becoming digital animals, right? So this becomes an even, information is an even more important commodity on the right or the wrong hands, if you may, right? So how will that impact uh, warfare? Is this something that you see as growing more? becoming more prevalent? I, I do think, if I dare say that first, Dimitri, yes, it will grow because by now we're having this thing called social media, which pretty much means everybody can generate content, which is nothing new. In the past, you could send your letters to an editor of a newspaper, and if you're lucky, you get a little article in that. But this was slow. This was very much a quality controlled process and chances were that educated people could immediately understand oh this is complete nonsense or at least a weird perception of reality but nowadays 
we don't have this kind of buffering in between. We don't have this kind of quality check. And anybody could really launch a new idea, a conspiracy theory, a stupid lie, something deceptive, or simply a misunderstanding to some extent. Problem is, nobody counts the shots any longer. So we are still conditioned by this kind of, oh, it's printed, so it must be good. Oh, I heard something like that before. So why shouldn't it be now? Following a certain pattern, be the same thing. So that's why it's spreading without any yeah, real way of keeping it in line with what is what I would call an educated perspective on the world. And that's exactly why it will manipulate politicians as well as industry and business leaders. But on the other end, of course, it's an issue of liberty, right? Free speech. <laughs> that's what we were fighting for for so many decades. Now we have it and it's not always going to the right direction. Okay, let's let's stay there for a moment. Okay, let's That's talk it. a little bit about about free speech, and I want your your comments on and this one. So, Bersir is reminding us that social media companies are self-regulated, so they decide uh, to what extent what is true and what is not, right? So, uh, very little oversight, and at least here in the U.S., I don't know in your side of the Atlantic Ocean, but in here, we have this debate about you know should we regulate more, should we not regulate? So, to what extent? Uh, we violate free speech uh, by regulating them. But on the other hand, we're letting those private companies decide what is true or not. So is there a middle of the road in there? Well, if you're asking me, I don't think that uh, there's a road there. <laughs> there's no middle of the road because there is no any road on this because uh, still I'm getting back to the situation that I'm in the middle of the war and uh, in the, uh, being in the middle of it, uh, I feel the information warfare um, hits every day. Every day I post on Facebook different my my thoughts, my my comments about things and every day uh bots uh that are being regarded by facebook uh as the coordinated inauthentic behavior they come into my post and put it in comments in a certain way so i know that this is bots i'm like going to to these profiles i'm i'm seeing these uh it is always uh, young women uh good looking uh, without any photos, uh, the profiles that were launched in February 2023 or January 2023, I have reported for now, I'm counting, I have reported about like 47 profiles that I considering that they are bots. Usually they are uh, commenting in a way that uh, uh, Ukraine is something that uh, uh, Europeans uh, hate, uh, the U.S. is not interested in Ukraine. Anyhow, everyone will uh, leave you and you will be alone in front of the big enemy like Russian Federation. And we have to be friends with Russian Federation and all this creepy stuff. So I have reported about 47 accounts with zero, zero response from Facebook. Unfortunately, I cannot somehow influence this, this problem. I cannot appeal. I cannot go to any kind of, you know, government uh, bodies or court, for example, to ask that I don't want to see these bots on my Facebook page because they are violating the rules of the Facebook. So when I when I registered in Facebook, I 
signs that I agree that I will comply with the rules that they you are a real person too right you said you're a real person yeah 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 and I have yeah I have this verification mark so I think that I if can afford to myself I can ask for a proper service because I agreed to comply with the rules so I can ask the company to eliminate and to ban those bots that are not complying with the rules and i cannot i do not have any means how to influence the company because they is just staying ignorant with me on the other hand um if we put this in a certain certain another way facebook is a country with the uh, the population of the uh, i think it's about like two and a half billion people so bigger than if China, we can, uh, yeah if you can consider this as a country this is a mostly the most totalitarian country in the world because it is only mark zuckerberg who defines the rules of this world it's only mark zuckerberg who gives the assignments how to ban people or how to allow them to, what to talk and what not to talk uh again we are getting back to ukrainian case uh, uh, very many people were banned uh, among my audience about uh, uh, among my my friends just telling the truth about what is happening on the ukrainian territory they were banned by facebook because facebook thinks that this is violent content well okay this is violent content because we are in the middle of the war so in other way uh, I can say that the Facebook now, if we consider this as, as a country with two and a half uh, billion uh, people population, is the most totalitarian country in the world because only one person decides how to act in this in this uh, um, you know in, in this space. And this disturbs me a lot because we are now talking about metaverse. So metaverse, it's even bigger space that's gonna like I think that, we are gonna shift to this space. So we gonna live in this country that we'll call metaverse, will be called metaverse. So we, we will stay there the majority time, like major time of our work time, of our daily, daily routine. And uh, I'm very concerned about the situation that some people who ruling the meta company, they make the decisions, whether should I talk, whether should I shut up? And I consider this as a violation of my free, freedom of speech, of my human rights, of my constitutional rights to express the reality uh, which I see now. And uh, uh, for example, we are pending now the discussions about the hate speech, uh, which is um, the, also my big concern because in my humble opinion, I have my full constitutional right to hate people who want to kill me. So I have this right because constitution gives me and the and the the I, well the uh, the chapter of human rights gives me this right to hate those people who wants to kill me and they stating this in their television. So I I'm able and I have a, a freedom of uh, speech. I have the right to hate them. So Facebook, Instagram, and other platforms they are stripping me from this right. So they uh, they not giving me the opportunity to to practice this right, and this is I think uh, our problem that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and unfortunately we are far beyond the situation when we start when we have to start to think whether we should regulate this or not. 
we are in a uh, deep uh, problem, if I may say, and uh, we need to act now, not to discuss it, but already to act. Yeah, so, I, I, can, I can share your thoughts, of course. Thank you, Rom, if I can just comment to that. And of course, you're going for an extreme case, but your answer is pretty much it's not possible to regulate a platform like that by simply having people kind of sharing common values. And we all know this won't happen. We know that this kind of misuse of any platform, analog or digital, happened in the past as well. So whenever people see some kind of personal advantages. But of course, the question is, should be abolish them because we can't really tame them in a way? Or should we just let go and hope that people will learn how to conquer? It's a bit like a leapfrogging, right? You invent something, then there's a countermeasure. You invent something new to manipulate, then there's a countermeasure. Just, just not even in your dimension, in your leak of what you mentioned, but we all know Amazon and their product reviews. And obviously, you can manip manipulate as well by simply buying likes which is not a real user. So this is another way of manipulation, which is a business. Come on, you can hire well, people so. just you like your product. So does it mean we don't want to have any Amazon-like product platforms any longer? Or do we have to simply accept that, well, all these comments and likes are somehow or maybe faked, so we don't trust them, they will lose credibility. And in the end, they might be yeah, gone. So I don't think, back to Dimitri and your, your point, that it's a kind of, uh, well, you're in the middle of a very bad situation, of course, but we can't blame all the platforms for people misusing them. I'd rather argue we have to be better in terms of how to use them, the kind of guidelines that you're, you're demanding. They are there, but they're not enforced. I guess it's an issue of volume, pure volume, to regulate a market like that and still have some kind of making ideas. But that's yeah. for the future, I agree. I, I want to stay here because a lot of people are talking yeah. and asking questions about accountability. So we're gonna talk about the things we do can control and talk about our profession, right? So let's talk a little bit about the importance of fact validation, right? So we are all competitive or market intelligence professionals. And right there, I want to turn to you and ask you for some tips. How can we check if information is true or are we responsible for that? To what extent we're responsible and should we talk about some guidelines in terms of what can we do so that we, we don't become part of the problem, we become part of the solution? Yeah, I mean, now we're talking about some real campaigns, let's say, not just a post, an item, which is sort of so much of a nuisance, but nothing else. So when I have to check information like that, I always try to work in a checklist-like approach to avoid that I'm emotionalized or kind of biased to start with. So the first step is I try to check out two dimensions. One is source, who said something, wrote something, posted something. And second is content, independently of who said it, posted it. So it's a very critical thing, I guess, to, to discriminate here because the two don't correlate. Content and the kind of source could be completely weird. And that's one of the big problems, right? We always tend to believe a good source, but it could be complete rubbish or manipulation. So when it's the source, 
what can I do? I can do a background check. I can try to better understand who is it. If it's a robot, of course, a bot, I have nothing, but I can just claim them for being exactly that. If it's a real person, chances are they've posted something in the past, they have a social media trail, or they're simply known in an industry, again, in a in very um, political arena. So then, of course, I can profile. I can try to better understand intention. Why would they post something like that? Motivation behind that. Is it something they do regularly or are they even played? I, they could be wrong by having been fed with some fake information, some kind of deception, what have you. So once I understand that, I have a bit of better understanding what the source is all about. Second step, content. So wherever it comes from, what does it really mean? If it's a quick one, plausibility check. Can it be true? There are wonderful sources, secondary sources, sometimes available for free. So if you know your way around, if you know your industry, if you know your governing bodies or what have you, then you can find online databases, you can find experts, key opinion leaders who might be willing to share the insight with you or you can learn and really understand what's going on i always try to understand beyond the plausibility check the kind of who benefits qe bono why would some content like that appear sometimes not the straightforward cause and root relationship but it could be a bit more complicated so think about a stakeholder analysis who might be behind a post like that? The very content, not the guy who posted it, but what is the kind of intention here that somebody posts it like that? We call it devil's advocate. Try to think from a different perspective. What if it was true under certain circumstances? What if it was wrong, deliberately wrong? Why would it be there? So we're trying to be a bit like a simulation they're checking out from each end what might be going on in this very content arena. If it's a really big one, so something like earth shaking or for a company, it might mean it's a real yeah, killer campaign that's kind of going on and you see only bits and pieces of it slowly evolving. Then I recommend a methodology called analysis of competing hypotheses. When it comes to the kind of who's done it, what's behind a content like that, and really think through and elaborate on, on what's going on. And this includes a lot of creativity, defining and identifying hypotheses, and then finding bits and pieces of evidence for or against. That's a trade-off typically. You only do it when it's a major significant thing that you have to understand, but, it might shed some light and only then you understand the kind of why behind the content like that. If you then add the content and the source and you make up your mind, you have your narrative and you can hopefully better handle and be preemptive when it's a real threat or leverage if it's an opportunity for your company. And then of course you're in the game, right? Yeah, so I want to stay along the same lines. And Dimitri, when I want to turn to you because actually you are in the front line. So let's focus on 
false information intentionally disclosed to sow disinformation, right? The proverbial fake news, right? Is there a process you recommend to discover fake news and disinformation campaigns? How, I mean, so you mentioned the bots, but how do you go about, you know, uh, uncovering this thing? So, you know, this is really fake news. Uh, this is a disinformation campaign. Do you have some steps or best known methods you can share? Well, I think that uh, Reiner has put it very well in terms of like procedures that can be implemented. But um, unfortunately, when we are talking about the um, spreading of fakes and disinformation campaign, we usually uh, talk about the harm that is being caused not by influencing some person, but because of the massive numbers of spreading these ideas that can harm the society uh, in total. So the, the most uh, uh, significant and most harmful um, thing in, in this information, not the lies itself, but how it's spreading, the massive spreading of these ideas and massive spreading of this information that can cause deaths of people, like I said, in Iran, for example, in terms of like infodemics. So um, unfortunately, we are talking about big audiences and we have to give like very simple receipts for like very simple algorithm for big audiences. And we cannot expect that many of them can be experts, many of them can be educated enough to, to you know, to practice those checklists and practice those algorithms. So I keep talking, I keep, I, I'm trying to keep saying, keep saying in the TV, in Ukrainian media that uh, first, uh, uh, for me, first, uh, uh, first issue that I'm trying to explain that uh, disinformation spreading is based on your emotions. So, because of the emotions, you want to make a decision to put to to like to put a button share or like or comment because you want to uh, contribute something because you feel that you have to do something because it's like for example, crucified boy. A very famous uh, uh, picture in Ukraine that uh, started to be famous also in, in uh, Western Europe uh, that Russians started to spread the information that uh, Ukrainian army has caught uh, a boy who, uh, who spoke Russian language and uh, crucified him on, on the battle tank or something. So some kind of like idiocratic things. But um, this case exactly says that people... Uh, became vulnerable for disinformation, not because it's fooling them, because they want to share it, to share it with with uh, their their loved ones, because they want to somehow to be engaged in this uh, in this uh, process, to restore justice, for example, or to share their approach or to do something. So we're trying to explain to the people that emotions in these circumstances is your enemy. So it even doesn't matter whether you consume false or wrong information. You are still can be saved if you do not share it at least. So we are, we are stopped in, in this station uh, saying to people that your emotions can lead you to spreading this information. So consuming information, uh, consuming this information is not such a big problem because you can go to some kind of like fact-checking organization, get another point of view, you can Google, you can ask your relatives, so you can ask your friends or colleagues how to uh, get some kind of another opinion on this. 
and still be secured. But when you start to act emotionally, you like, you, you put like, you comment, you share the, uh, this information, and that becomes very, very dangerous for you personally uh, and for those people who are listening to you, who are seeing you in the social media and so on and so forth. So um, we are trying to picture the one simple advice. If you feel that the information you consume uh, asks you or, or requests some actions from you or requests some emotions from you, you have just to stop a while for a 30 seconds or one minute just to like ask a couple of questions. And it doesn't matter whether you know the checklist that uh, is being described by, by the experts or you are like just not a person not into these political issues. So if you will just stop and like ask a couple of questions, what is it, why Why I'm reading this and so on and so forth. So you're already secured. And we're trying to consider this as the evolution process. Um, let's say like 5,000 years ago, um, humans, uh, people, they went everywhere to, for, for example, seeking for uh, water to drink. And they had to try several sources to define which water is good, which is poisoned, which is which is bad. So it's not so easy and you have to, to test it. You, you don't have special labs how to define what source is good, what source is bad, because you're living five years, 5,000 years ago. And still people who defined, who uh, people who uh, get used to the situation when they trying this water and when they make a difference between the good and the bad, they survive and they evolve. They give their genes to, to their children. And this is how it's happening now. So those people who are able to differ the disinformation from uh, like normal information, they will evolve and they will go, go on with this. If people are not ready to do this or people are lazy to do this, well, Unfortunately, this is evolution. Evolution says that and most people are lazy. Yeah, yeah. So um, let me ask you a different kind of question. Uh, so, Dimitri, how does it usually start, right? So, if someone wants to create a campaign, do we start a rumor in social media, or do you hire an influencer, or we go and we we feed this this person fake information? How does it work? How how can you create what is the the culprit the little snowball that starts rolling and turns into a giant snowball how do they do this well in my humble opinion uh this is like any other management process you start with a goal you want to uh, figure out uh, what you can what you want to have as a result now uh, me personally i'm trying to use uh, another term which is uh, reflexive control or reflexive management which means that I try to figure out what I want to expect from another person or my target audience to do, what I want them to think about myself, about the situation, about the reality, and so on and so forth. When I set up the goal, I'm trying to understand what message can push the target audience to these deeds, to these actions, or to avoid some actions that I don't want them to, to, uh, to do. So what message can uh, uh, engage them in uh, this doing or not doing something? 
Then after I constructed the message box, after I constructed the story, so I need the, uh, uh, the, uh, the means how to do the storytelling. So I created the content. Now I have to create the means of uh, delivery of this content to my target audience. And only when I trying to figure out what means of delivery of this message box to my target audience uh, should do and how it should be constructed, I'm st starting to think whether should I have the a network of the bots of uh, to to like uh, to manufacture the coordinated and authentic behavior in social media, whether I have to hire some uh, opinion uh, makers and uh, um, uh, and policy makers uh, so they will produce certain posts or certain articles to spread the ideas that I want to spread and so on and so forth. So the technical stage of doing this actually goes beyond the manufacturing the operation. And um, this is why I'm uh, constantly saying that this information is not the media phenomena. This is a phenomenon that was born in an intelligence sphere. So this is the intelligence practice. Uh, the government intelligence that create the active measures and disinformation is only the part of these active measures. And when we're talking about this, uh, I think that we have to understand that with all my deep respect to the media experts and journalists who are working on these issues for the last seven or eight years about fighting this information and countering this information, unfortunately, when we're talking about how to fight with this information, we have to stick to the people who are working with intelligence, who know how the information works in terms of like warfare, in terms of in terms of like com competitiveness on the on the very aggressive markets and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, I think that scenarios and the algorithms that are being used they are not changing. Uh, this is the main when you cannot figure out something brand new because people are doing this for decades and for thousands of years. And uh, I think that Sun Zi, in uh, his, uh, uh, in his uh, strategies, they, he, he already uh, like figured it out and, and uh, he already said it how to do this. So nothing new, but, uh, but modern, modern technologies and modern platforms, uh, they give you much more variance how you can manufacture the means of delivery of your content when the emotional strikes, uh, they still the same uh, when um, the people, I don't, in Middle Ages started to do these political active measures uh, and uh, uh, trying to uh, kill or poison their rivals uh, for the King Throne, uh, whatever. So nothing is changing through the centuries, but uh, uh, now technologies afford to do this very fast and effectively. Well, I wanted to stay on that point. So, for example, uh, I watched a video created by the MIT labs, uh, MIT Media Labs, and they took President Nixon and they create an entirely fake video where he comes in and say, my, my fellow Americans, you know, I regret to inform you that, you know, the Apollo, Apollo rocket crash landed into the moon and all on board perished. So, uh, and I was looking, of course, I know President Nixon never ever said that. We know that the Apollo mission landed in the moon and it returned back to earth, right? But now, uh, and the video was very well done. And I was looking, well, I will age myself, but I looked at, this is Nixon. This is Nixon. You know, the mannerisms, the speech and etc. And then the experts explained, well, we took his resignation speech. So his, his face is somber, the tone, tone is low. And what happens is the White House has two types of speeches. 
one if things go well and one if things don't go so well. So they found this speech. It was written by the guy who did the, the Nixon speeches. So that's Nixon's speech per se. So this is actually Nixon's mannerisms and expressions. And then with that tone, so it is perfectly believable. Now we have a video out there. Of course, we know it's fake. But now we have a video out there where a president of the United States says, well, we never actually got to the moon. It's all a lie. And many people said that, right, back at that time. It's just a propaganda movie. We never actually got to the moon, right? So now with this combination of video plus audio uh, plus technology that we can basically make some anyone say whatever we want, right? Uh, how it, it's so damaging. So is there any way or a procedure companies can adapt to counter those smear campaigns? So, you know, Rainier, I will turn to you. So let's say I'm a, a radical vegan guy and I create a campaign and I go and I say, you know what, Rainier, you stab your cows, you electrocute them. And, and I take a video of that was produced somewhere and I show you electrocuting a cow. Right. And I put it on, on social media. How do you counter that stuff? Is there a procedure? How do you fight the smear campaign? Um, well, is there a way of doing it? Yes. I mean, this is known as PR in crisis, right? When there's a scandal blowing up, which could be a fake one or it could be a real one, by the way. So every now and then companies have scandals and they better prepare for their outward appearance as in press, as in communication as in being honest or simply denying. So that's a bit of a policy thing, right? How you want to counter some stuff like that. But if it's an ongoing campaign like that, and we know some companies like Nestle, for example, they have a big problem oh, yeah. with some attack and, and other yeah, organizations who believe in, well, they're killing our animals because they want to harvest their oil or what have you. They're killing babies in Africa because they want to sell their milk powders. So this is the kind of ongoing accusations. Then, of course, as a Nestle, what can you do? You have to prove that you're not like that, which is typically not just the words and your press releases, but you have to be good at what you're doing. You have to be beyond, uh, beyond this kind of accusations and call out what's going on and then trust that your consumers will somehow believe that your shareholders, your yeah, your your suppliers and whoever is part of your ecosystem will believe into whatever you're telling them. But it's a, it's a very difficult one. And and you're pointing a good you made a good case about the Nixon Apollo program. That's going straight into conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy theories is kind of the next leak. It's not just a rumor. It's not just an item, a bit of a fake. No, this is a narrative. This is really like a challenge to what we believe in. And there are loads of conspiracy theories around which have a bit of something that could be truth. But now people get into this emotional stuff. They're getting suspicion. They go for some pattern as in, oh, they lied before, so why wouldn't they lie now? We've seen so bad things coming up. And that's exactly when, when it sort of becomes alive. A very stupid theory suddenly becomes something that is very harmful in the end. So that's exactly when you have a problem. And then it's very difficult to counter theories, conspiracy theories like that.
And, and actually, you made a statement in one of the um, ISAC conferences, if I remember correctly, you said, you know, so what is it that counterintelligence is more important now than ever? Could you please explain that? What, what did you mean by that? Well, this is exactly the point. You have to become paranoid as a company and simply be prepared that something like that might happen. You don't know when, you don't know why, you don't know how. But if you have no mental understanding that it could hit any time, chances are you're simply uh, too late to react. Looks very clumsy, almost a bit naive if you're not prepared like that. So that's exactly when the kind of good prepared company should be able to have better response at least than if you're completely caught by surprise in the end. So that's exactly when, when, when counterintelligence your investment, let's say, in counterintelligence, in defense of your company plays out. And that should be part of any corporate activities by now, unfortunately, as we have to say. Yeah, but it's true. Uh, so, Dimitri, I wanted to turn to you with a different kind of question. And, uh, you know, um, I, I will age myself again. But so in the old days, so when you read the Pravda, for example, no, to a great extent, all the editorial line was disclosed, right? We are here to proclaim the glory of the Soviet Union. So it provided a perspective. And the stories were written to support a certain lens or perspective. And we knew that, but it was said, right? So nowadays, for the most part, those editorial lines are inferred, but really not disclosed. So it may not be apparently clear to the readers or even to the people who watch the news, right? Uh, so this information is positioned to support a certain, a certain view of the world, right? To what extent do you believe citizen reporting, so uh, people who are, for example, in Ukraine, giving news or sharing their, their perspectives of what's going on on the ground, so citizen reporting or open source intelligence, do they really add value to the debate? Do we need more of that? Uh, it's a very interesting question because uh, I think that we have several trends uh, going here in the opposite directions. Because from one angle, the quality, I mean, the, uh, the value and the essence of the high quality journalism is rising as never before. Because all people there really need some kind of standards in reporting, uh, in consuming information. And unfortunately, in Ukraine, we, um, uh, uh, we just get used to get information for free because uh, media, uh, it, it, they were never kind of a huge business like in Western countries, like in the US and the Western Europe. And now we're still educating the audience that uh, if you consume some news, if you consume some information, you have to pay for this because independent media, independent journalists, they have to, you know, to uh, earn some money to pay their debts, but to pay their, 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 their bills and uh, uh, produce uh, good standards uh, for the information reporting to you. On the other hand, the popularity of the high quality journalism and the standards-based journalism is in decline now because every person now is a source of information. Every, every blogger producing the news, every uh, Telegram channel producing some comments and political overview of what is going on. Another pair of trends can be regarded that uh, from one point of view, people that are trying to uh, 
develop their uh, blogs, for example, on Facebook and Twitter. They're trying to get the verification marks to say that here we are, here we are our documents, we are identified and we are like real people. We want you to believe that we are like real persons. In the same time, the counter trend saying that uh, Telegram now as a platform is being used for the micromedia as, uh, uh, for example, Telegram channels. And 95% of them are anonymous, totally anonymous sources of the information. And this is very, very dangerous because people start to get used to consume anonymic information. So without any names, without any editorials, without nothing. Absolutely. And uh, because of the critical situation that we have now, uh, the, the amount of uh, consuming of information is growing extensionally. So people, if uh, people, you know, they were reading several articles per day, for example, several news, and it was mostly showbiz and sports. So now they kind of reading about a dozen, a couple of dozen of them. So majority are about politics, about what is going on in political level, about the war, about negotiations, about what government said and so on and so forth. So really, it's uh, in my humble opinion, it's a very tough situation. And again, in my humble opinion, we have uh, we have to build relationship to this as to the evolution. We cannot fight it. We cannot. Um, I think that uh, uh, what Reiner has said is right that companies have to be aware of, of these threats. But on the other hand, uh, companies will never had uh, enough of resources to invest in this readiness. So um, we also trying to assure people that it's far more better to produce information than to consume it, you know? So when you are like a journalist, when you're trying to explain to other people what is going on, how, what is your opinion, you are more, more defended, you are more secured than those people who only consume. Because when they consume, they are limited in their cons consuming because well, uh, the time is limited and the capacity of each person is limited. So they can scroll Facebook feed. They can go to some website. They can go to some YouTube channel. But, you know, only 24 hours in a day. You cannot do this forever. And now we having like millions of hours of videos uh, uploaded to YouTube uh, each hour. Uh, so when you producing more but consuming less, you are more secured, which makes me think that if companies and if businesses, they're trying to uh, invest in promotion of their values, their ideas, their brands, to explaining how they feel this world, how they feel the reality. So to full, to, uh, to me, I mean, to, feel, to feel full universe with their content, it will be, it can be uh, another solution how to fight it. So it's like uh, I'm usually trying to um, do it offline. I mean, uh, trying to give an example offline. When you take a glass of wine, but you don't want to drink wine, you want to drink water. How you can do this without like spilling out the, the, the wine? You just put the, the, the glass of wine under the water, under the, I mean, in, in the bathroom. So, and water is going into the glass, replacing the, the wine. So this is how you can replace the false information by producing more 
strategic communication by producing more promotion about your brand, about your company, and so on and so forth. So, like, very simple um, thought is, like, producing of information defends you even more than just, like, being aware uh, how to consume good information, not bad. So don't be a victim. And by the way, you are speaking at the upcoming ICI conference and you have a panel called Lessons Learned, uh, which will run on April the 20th, uh, 2.30 p.m. Berlin or European Central Time. Could you share a few thoughts about that? What are you planning to talk about? Well, uh, it's interesting because we just like came to this conclusion that uh, uh, what we see now in Ukraine is that we tried to create several governmental bodies how to fight disinformation, how to identify this, how to be prepared, how to teach people and so on and so forth. But in my humble opinion, uh, everything goes when you are leading, when you, it's like competitive market, it's like management. If you are leading in your domain, you don't care what competitors are doing. If you're producing more and more innovations, you don't care about whether they want to steal your information, whether they want to steal your know-how or not. If you are leader by definition, if you're doing more and more each day, so you can be more protected, more protected from different threats, including information space threats, then if you will invest only in in you know the defense if uh, if i may say the defensive weapons how to be aware how to like to be reluctant to all, all the threats because now um, any art any article can be the threat any situation can be the threat for example french company bonduel is now uh, regrouping its business in Russian Federation just because they were accused in the in a situation when uh, their products are being used to deliver, uh, to being, de uh, being delivered to the front line to Russian soldiers. So just it's like the, the involvement of the European company in, in, in the fighting. So now they're trying to somehow to reduce the impact on their reputation in, in Russian Federation. So, so I mean that any situation can be a threat. And you cannot think only about the threats. So uh, the lesson learned for me, uh, saying that it's better to be proactive, uh, creating more uncertainty because people from the security, um, uh, me, for example, I started my career in special services and counterintelligence. And uh, I know that people from security bases, they are more, uh, they are more, um, traditional in thinking about the threats and telling more about the threats. When uh, people from business, they're thinking more about the leadership, they're feeling more about the different risky operations. So the task of the security managers is to eliminate uncertainty. The task of the marketing managers and product managers to create uncertainty because by trying something new, by, tr by creating new products, you're creating uncertainty. And this fight between the concept of certainty and uncertainty, in my humble opinion, is a very interesting concept that can uh, be shown how the lessons learned uh, here in Ukraine, how uh, what is working and what is not working in information space uh, with uh, these kind of instruments uh, with the regard of how many 
funds we have spent <laughs> in the last nine years in Ukraine uh, from uh, uh, from Western donors and from Western funds, how many finances were invested and what uh, worked and what uh, didn't work. Wonderful. So, uh, right there, we will turn to you for one last piece of advice. You know, could you please share a few BKM's best known methods professionals can adopt to better protect their companies or brands? What can we do? Yeah, <laughs> of course, I like Dimitri's uh, ideas here. Um, I guess you could summarize it as survival of the paranoid, right? Survival of the paranoid. Okay. So, this is a bit of a dilemma, I agree, and, and yes, 100% protection is not possible. But on the other end, of course, just proactively producing press releases, ah, signaling to the market how wonderful you are, that, that might work against you as well. So sometimes it might be not as smart as opposed to the very situation that you just told us about, Dimitri, and this kind of ongoing war. So I'd, I'd be a bit more careful about this kind of how proactive should a company be and what kind of messages should signal to the market. In the end, we all try to be, try to believe that people are somehow rational. So they will find out what a good product is, a sustainable product, something they really need versus it's just marketing and it's something harmful to your health or what have you. So along these lines of being an optimist, I'd argue that a company has to make sure that they signal to the market whatever it takes, but they shouldn't overdo it. Because otherwise it becomes a bit like, why do they have to be so active? Are they afraid of something? Do they have to cover up? Are they hiring, hiding something? <laughs> Are they hiding something? Exactly. So again, here it might be a bit of a difference between the two scenarios, the two theater stages we just discussed. But Rationality is a good idea. Paranoia might be a good idea, especially, and this is exactly what we were discussing today, uh, the speed, the information diffusion speed of, of bad information, of wrong information is so insane that you can't work through a sort of big pile of press releases and having to counter each and every of them. That's simply not possible any longer. So. Yeah, in between what we discussed from uh, Dimitri, thank you, what you just mentioned and, and what's feasible, I think there is a bit of a strategy that any company should adopt and really start actively thinking about it. Along these lines, I guess there is a good solution. Well, okay. Well, it seems we had such a wonderful conversation today and thank you so much for your time. You know, folks, we really are just scratching the surface here. We can certainly continue this conversation, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. So please visit. Uh, that's uh, www.instituteforcompetitiveintelligence.com. That is institute-for-competitive-intelligence.com. For more information on competitive intelligence best practices and some of the best training you can find on the for today, you'll find the link to the ICI in the description section of this video. I also invited Reiner and Dimitri to chair a roundtable in the upcoming BC Latinx conference, and the topic will be TI and foresight for startups. So please uh, stay tuned. Uh, we are live actually in three different uh, media platforms, and a lot of people wanted Dimitri for me to send a message to you. And the message is basically uh, every everybody with you, everybody sending their love, their prayers. Um, 
best of hope, uh, best of luck and, and, and peace. And as in the words of Bessislava Ukraine, we all, we all uh, certainly uh, feel for you. Uh, so again, thank you so much, folks, for being here with Dimitri Zolotukin and Raina Mikhaeli and with me today. And by the way, feel free to continue to submit your comments and your questions in, in, in our YouTube page. And you, you make sure, I will make sure to read and present the guests. Any other questions you might have? I know there's a few other comments here that we didn't have a chance to get through. So please, if you're listening to us via podcast or watching us or the recording via Future Television, you can be part of the conversation. Again, just visit our YouTube channel and uh, leave a comment and don't forget to share like the video and please do subscribe to our channel i am uh, counting on you so it's time uh, for me to say our official goodbyes again thank you so very much uh, for being here with us today and i hope to see you again in another edition of reflection thank you <laughs>